0: think little things don't matter the only thing that matters is the little things every micro action changes the simulation and it changes the pathway towards synchronicity
1: hi i'm rhett power and it's great to be here with stan staldnicker from hub culture now this is a unique interview we're live in davos switzerland at the world economic forum 2022 and Stan, what you've built at Hub Culture is is absolutely phenomenal. We're here uh, in a tech lodge in this amazing, beautiful place. It's overlooking the mountain here; uh, just a beautiful setting here in May. This is usually done in January, and it's snow-covered. Today we get to see the trees and the green, so it's a, it's a, just a wonderful setting. And, and I, I appreciate this collaboration of sitting down with you to talk about what you've built here at Hub Culture and the the, the universe that you're trying to, to build and the culture you've built at this organization, it's just it's it's a model I think for how other leaders can think about building their their businesses and their community because what you've done is just absolutely remarkable. Thank you for having me here today to sort of to do this podcast jointly with my show and, and yours, which by the way, for my audience, you've got to check out and and where where can people find the Hub Culture Chronicles? Is that can they find it on Apple iTunes yep. and so first all of guys. all,
0: welcome, Brett, to the um, Hub Culture Davos Summer Campus. Um, we have six places here in Davos that have right. grown kind of organically since uh, I first started coming to Davos in two thousand seven. The Ice House is this kind of iconic building that we're in now, and the Tech Lodge, which we've just talked about, these are the two anchor points built on the pavilion, which really was the inception of our presence Mm -hmm. here in Davos. We also have the terrace, we have the chalet, we have the studio, and we have the Ven.U, the venue, which is the new kind of outdoor (laughs) secret garden. Very unique because, you know, Davos is always in January, sometimes under 15 feet of snow, and this Davos is the green Davos that they've always talked about but never really manifested. This is the most beautiful Davos I've ever seen. It's wildflowers, it's clouds drifting through the mountains, it's, it's really unique. And it's felt very different energetically from the last time we were here, which was 2020. So it's so great to be talking to you and to learn a little bit more about your work and to share the work that we're doing here at Hub Culture. It's really the world's oldest social network. It began from a book I wrote in 2002 about the culture evolving into hubs and the idea of a network culture. Um, it was the first book to really look at that as a phenomenon beyond the old idea of like what an expat could be. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it because I was living in Hong Kong. I was working for Time Warner, and I was moving all across Asia Pacific. And I saw the emergence of a new type of culture. I was, at the time, writing for CNN. I had a column called Culture on Demand. Right. It was one of the first blogs. Um, it was sort of before the word blog existed. But right. Time and CNN, I worked at Fortune, but Time and CNN gave me the chance to write every weekend. And so I published every Saturday about whatever I was doing. And that turned into a book. And the book looked at this idea of a new culture. And what would a globalized culture looked like that was networked and highly personal and different from this idea of, say, a corporate sponsor that sent you abroad to work in your, like, limousine. What if you were 24 and you wanted to roam the world and to be a global citizen? What would that look like? And that's what hub culture was. And I was very lucky to be around some of the earliest people who were living that. And so I documented them in that book. And then we started this website, hubculture.com. 20 years ago, Uh, this is our 20th anniversary and it became one of the first social networks, but always geared around a different model. I had been in advertising and so I didn't want to sell advertising around the people that were in this network. It felt wrong to me and so, for a long time, I had to keep my day job. And we built this network. Uh, we built this city. Um, nice reference. we well, not on rock and roll. We we built this city on EDM. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, we you know we started throwing parties, and you know we did events, and we would do dinners, and we just pull people together. And so we became one of the earliest networks focused on experiential the experience of hub culture is what makes people know about hub culture, even though the website and the technologies that we've built have evolved into this ecosystem. And over time, the mission and the application of the mission has evolved, but it's always been based on the same initial ideas. Like the very, very heart and inception of hub culture has been around a couple of key principles. But what's happened is that the growth of the ecosystem and the change of the world around us has helped us to, in a way, continue to evolve. And so we really think of ourselves now as the first prototype virtual state. And that's kind of our long-term ambition. How do you get people,
1: what I'm fascinated by all this is, is how do you get people to understand this? And I
0: I think you understand what I mean. I think Mm -hmm. it's hard to grasp the only way that I've found that works is to feel it you can't understand it until you feel it and to feel it you have to experience it which is why I don't worry about our numbers I don't worry about how many members we have I don't worry about how many page views we get I don't care about any of that the only thing I really care about is building authentic feeling And so if we can do that, then I know that people understand. And my work, especially the last couple of years, has been internally and externally thinking about how the culture of the organization becomes the most important message point. That's so much of my work with my teams. And we have a very unique way of sourcing talent within our organization. But a lot of what I spend my time thinking about, focusing on, and working on is trying to convey the culture to the team and helping them feel it once they get synchronized with the feeling then everything also unravels and in a way you can actually let go and let it invent itself but if they don't have the synchronization of the frequency it's chaos and we've experienced that firsthand because we do really crazy stuff what's the mindset of somebody's that that you look
1: for i guess and not only in the company but Somebody that you want to reach through your programs through hub culture what is what mindset does the person an individual need to be in
0: to sort of under to to feel it or be open to feeling it well, I think like the easy answer is to say an open mindset there's the kind of gradient to what you just asked, because hub culture is really unique. It's a social network with people. So essentially anyone can join up. Right. But then once you're in, anyone can create a hub. And we ourselves have created thousands of hubs within hub culture. And those hubs attract certain people who gravitate toward them. And we find people through people. And so the line between a member of hub culture and an employee of hub culture is extremely blurry. And the people who kind of come through the doors, we've had 75,000 people through 60 hubs over the last, you know, 15 or 18 years, maybe even more. Then it's more. They just just kind of gravitate in and then they experience it and they feel it and they come. Uh, Some of our people, even here in Davos, the people who are working with us, some of them worked in Glasgow at the last hub in COP26. And some of them worked in Miami um, at the last hub for crypto week, which happened in May. May. right? Some of them worked for us years ago. Some of them have been with us for like 12 years or even 15 years. Uh, some of them we found here in Davos because they're local and then we'll Move them to another location. So we tend to kind of bring people into the culture and then let them find their place. But it's not like we can afford to have full-time employees doing nothing because we don't do a hub every day. Hubs come and go, kind of with the wind. Um, They're like cherry blossoms, (laughs) and um, but they come back. Like this hub here in Davos is like a tree. It it grows and it goes to sleep and then it grows and it goes to sleep and it changes and it evolves. You know, we started with a tiny room downstairs in the pavilion in 2009 and then it kind of grew and expanded. The building we're in now is called the Ice House and it sits on top of the hub and it looks out over the mountains. It's an amazing building because maybe 2014 me and Bill McDonough were in the hub and everyone was packed. And I was like, Bill, Mm -hmm. I need more space and and I have an idea. And Bill McDonough is one of my heroes. He's probably my my biggest mentor. He's the father of the circular economy and the cradle-to-cradle movement, one of the world's great architects. And I'd met him at hubs around the world with Schwarzenegger in LA during his climate conferences at Climate Week in New York. But it was always one of those passing moments. It was very funny because I was talking to Arup, and I said to the Arup guy, yeah, I really want to build a building on top of this building. And the Arup guy looked at me, and Bill was like, hey, I'm standing right here, and I why don't you ask me? And I'm like, you're William McDonough. Like, I didn't <laughs> think I could you, get yeah. your. Well, I didn't think I could get your attention. Like you're one of the world's most famous architects, and so Bill and I went up in this tiny little elevator to the roof of the building, and we stood there and we, we looked at this view out over the city with yeah. the clock tower and the mountains, and Bill just kind of breathed and he's like, "Okay, I'll help you." And at the time, he was thinking about refugees, and he was thinking about how to build immediate housing for refugees, right. and especially in slums, right? Like, the fastest-growing urban location for population growth right. is the edges, the rings of cities, which are effectively decentralized and, um, unfortunately, not economically empowered. So Bill was thinking then about this idea called Wonder Frame and how do you build really fast, low-cost housing. And so the Ice House is a testament to that. And it's made of aluminum and polycarbonate. We've rebuilt it six times, one time in Amsterdam. And it's a building that is used and reused and used and reused. And from the Ice House came the Tech Lodge, which does the same thing with timber Mm -hmm. and polycarbonate. Began in 2020. And so we built these buildings in Davos, but we've also built these ideas. And we found Davos to be a great place to come to really you know participate but increasingly and especially on the other side of what i call the gap we're now looking at how do we try to lead in the culture beyond our culture how is this new universe
1: that we're, we're that is emerging and and people i mean you're one of the preeminent thought leaders in and how and in, in sort of envisioning a new world for us who inspires you? Like you, you talk about William McDonald, but who yeah. are some of the other people that? that well, there's really... a lot of
0: people in our community, and I had a real realization, and I think this is actually useful for other CEOs. For a long time, I was so focused on building hub, build hub, and you wa- we watched you know MySpace blow up, and then we watched well, first we watched Friendster, Friendster so blow up, <laughs> we watched MySpace, and then we of course saw Facebook, and Snap, and you know it's hard not to be a little jealous when everybody's made billions of dollars. But you know mm. we stuck with who we are, and I think that coming out of what I call the Great Gap, which was Davos 2020 to Davos 2022, mm. this um, you know kind of 29 30 months gap, you have got to just be your authentic self. Like we have to just lean in, in the words of Sheryl Sandberg, to ourselves and to who we are. And so it's okay that we're not the biggest. Um, we just need to be us, and we need to be authentically us. And that's been one of our messages kind of coming into this Davos, is be your authentic self. Um, our partner's dinner the other night, um, we were talking a lot about this, and the idea of healing. Because during the pandemic, I personally went really deep on a lot of things. I think we all did. We all had a lot we of had time to. to think for the first time. Right. And I so really really stopped, I fully stopped, and I had time to think about what we want to achieve with our mission, how do we get there, and I do think that on the other side of this gap, what we're seeing in Davos this year, which is really exciting, is a kind of recognition that authentic leadership is the only leadership. If you're not authentically in the frequency of truth... Mm-hmm. You are going to create turbulence, and that turbulence will either, at the best, it will slow you down. At the worst, it will result in chaos and destruction. So if you're not at the frequency of truth inside yourself, and then emanating that to your organization and to your team, there's no way you can succeed. And this is partially because of technology, when you look at the macro. right? Because the macro is being networked so quickly You know, there is a hub, which is the planet, and then there are zillions of hubs within that planet. Everything is now a network. And so you got to think of it like a machine. And every hub is a gear. And if the machine is not synchronized, it can't work. This was my realization a few years ago when I was up until that point. You know, you look at everybody else, you're like, I have to grow. And I was like, fuck growing. Like, I need to synchronize and so i took a really strong effort myself to set aside my ego about our organization and to go and synchronize with other organizations and this is really something i learned from burning man um that's a pretty wild story how i learned that but you know we're we have a transformation station which is our alter ego in burning man it's an amazing camp and we've learned so much from the burning man community We've learned so much from the Davos community. I see them as um, antecedents. Yeah, like they're, 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 they're kind of opposites. Complete. Like we have Davos in January and we have typically, and then we have Burning Man in August. And they're kind of the same, but different. Right. But then around it, you know, we have all these other things. We have CAN or UNGA. We have our innovation campus in the summer. We have our properties that we host guests in. Regardless, it's all just part of the community. But I was like, I have to go synchronize. We have to energetically synchronize into other networks. So we did it with Nexus. We've done it with um, Collective Legacy. Uh, We've been just actively trying to synchronize our energy with other organizations so that we can work with them in concert as a gear. And this is really about moving away from competition thinking Mm -hmm. toward collaboration thinking.
1: I think that's fascinating. But how do you get in that state of synchronization or harmony, whatever you want to call it, How do you live in that space
0: personally and and keep yourself? Well, there's only one way in my view, and that is about doing work internally in yourself to find synchronized harmony. And the good news is that the way to do that is extremely simple, which is to breathe. The only thing you have to do to begin the process of synchronization is to become aware of your breath. Okay it's literally the easiest thing in the world but it takes practice I've been meditating for 20 years, started doing yoga when I was 24, and those experiences started moving me towards something. And also, I grew up as a very religious kid in a very religious household in what you would consider traditional, like, Southern Baptist Arizona, which right. is about as conservative as it gets. Absolutely. Um, so I have those influences. So, you know, if you're um, a Muslim or a Christian, you have a pathway towards some form of inner awareness. right? And if you're a technologist today, um, you have a scientific pathway toward that, which is really exciting. And we're seeing this emerge with psychedelics. We're seeing it mer- emerge with like calm and, you know, the scientific benefits of inner work meditation in particular. And so when you move toward meditation and you start to find um, some sort of inner alignment and you start to learn to channel and there are ways to learn to channel. Um, you can learn to open and close energetic flows. So, for example, during the pandemic, I spent nine months studying weekly to become a Reiki master. Mm-hmm. And I studied with one of the, the great Reiki masters here in, in this country, in, in the United States. And um, I became a level three Reiki master to learn how to control energy. in a not, It's not scientific, but in a kind of physically aware way. And you can learn to physically be aware of energy moving through your body right. and to feel it. And the way you start to do that is through the breath. And once you start to learn that breath work, you can then synchronize. And then you can start to move it outward. And that's right. what I try and do. It drives my team crazy, especially when they're new <laughs> and they haven't experienced it. And they're like, oh my God, we have to do another synchronization. But mostly from Davos and from other hubs, I've learned that if we do not synchronize our team, we fail. And it's the craziest stuff happens. But if we do synchronize the team, if we take the time to consciously work, and there are many ways to do it. You can even kind of invent your own path or process. But if you work on synchronization, then you start to align vision. and. Do you That's do, do, you do that together
1: in the morning? Do you do that
0: before well, you start? Well, we don't have time done. during Davos, except in the prep days, right. and we we start with the teams as they come in, and so we'll have a dinner, or we'll have a talk, or we'll have something, and we always try to take at least one breath to synchronize that breath, and it's amazing because it's like a building um, cascade. We started. We have forty-five or so staff on the team right now here in Davos. We have. Probably 100 clients that are our partners who have helped to create these buildings, MasterCard, Adeco, Polygon, many others. And then we have all the visitors, of which there are thousands. And we can't do it with all those visitors that are thousands, but we can do it with our staff. And we kind of started with three or four, and they kind of got the message, and then it goes to 10, and then it goes to 30. And then we had a partner's dinner on Sunday night here, right. and I shared with them a story about how you transform the feeling of a word. In this case, the word was obligation, because we came to Davos with an obligation to deliver many things. But, you know, think about that word, obligation. It feels kind of heavy. kind of heavy. Yeah. It's kind of ugly. Yeah. It's like, oh, I have this obligation to, have build to build a building. That. I have this obligation to perform for my client. So how do you change the feeling of How do you change the feeling for that to become something that you're excited about, to feel privileged? That, hey, I have an obligation, but I also have the privilege of being around all these people who have power, who can try to shift the world. I have the capability to be in a beautiful mountain town where I can just experience air. I have the opportunity to create from these obligations. I have the opportunity to build a team and to give them work that is hopefully satisfying. I mean, it's hard work. It nearly kills them. But you come out of it on the other side with a sense of accomplishment. I think that's the big difference between us and Davos and everybody else. You know, Meta's next door, Palantir and us. Okay, those are all multi-billion dollar com- companies. We're a collection of people who come together with the idea of making the social network real. I and mean, we're so privileged to be here. Like, from a financial balance sheet standpoint, you could say we don't deserve to be here. But from a human standpoint, we're privileged to lead. So we're really, really happy. And I think that's the new leadership. That's the way that you can lead after the gap. Because we're all coming back into some new form of reality. This year, I was coming in to Davos meditating on how do we show what new leadership feels like? Yeah. What is the feeling of new leadership? And if we can convey that feeling to others, we can actually then change what leadership is. Absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a huge point. With everything that's going on in the world, how do you keep,
1: I mean, you look at what happened yesterday in Texas. You look at the war in Ukraine. You look mm-hmm. at the, just the impending financial crisis. Right? How do well, you don't stay? Don't
0: manifest that. But no, also, I don't want to manifest the, the it. The looming climate crisis, which is really the big one. That's a Absolutely. How do you keep yourself positive? Like, how do you,
1: because um, that's, that's,
0: that's got to be work, too. Listen, it's, it's really difficult, but I think it depends on how deep you want to go on this. Go deep? I mean, that's I why mean, we're here. I mean, if you <laughs> really want to know what I think. Yeah, I do. I, between the last Davos and this Davos, I mentioned I did a lot of internal work. And I have emerging theories about how the quantum world aligns itself to create the material world. And a lot of that work has come from time with, or a lot of that thinking has come from time with indigenous communities, both in Hawaii and in the Amazon. And I think that there is a lot for Silicon Valley technologists, the people who are building the interface between humanity and the digital world to urgently learn from indigenous communities. I, personally think that is the only way that we are going to survive the transition of material scarcity and digital abundance that's kind of a weird thing to say but those two things are about to collide and the way that we manage that collision is going to determine whether or not we elevate or disintegrate And so this is very much what we're focused on as an organization long-term is creating, I mentioned earlier, we've always had the same mission, right? The mission for Hub has always been to create a safe place for conscious transformation. That's literally been since day one. My very first investor in 2008 invested in this company because he also believed in that idea and that mission. Everything else that Hub does on the material plane is supposed to be in service of that greater mission. And the reason that that mission is so important is if you're a Malthusian, which I technically am, and if you look at long tech, we're set for a kind of dystopian future if we don't really get our act together. And the really sad thing about that is that the, I think the only way to get our act together is to internally transform Our energetic frequency. And that was always a conceptual concept that was in the future for years and years and years. But over the last seven years, it's become increasingly urgent and increasingly relevant. And we've also become increasingly capable of being able to do the work. We've been learning how to do that. And so Hub has now become a place where you can come and you can actually learn to do that. I I think that's fascinating. And and what,
1: tell me, let's let's switch gears a little bit. How do you see, let's let's bring
0: out your crystal ball. What does the world look like if we can transform? Okay, so I, I kind of said about going deep here. So if you look at the crystal ball, you have to understand first that the crystal ball is fractal. And so there are many timelines that we can find ourselves in. In fact, it's very probable that there are Currently, many parallel timelines that exist, we are in a point in space time that is linear. And so, from the material world of the ice house looking at these mountains, there is a linear back and forth between time. But at the quantum level and at the kind of level of the speed of light, it is not linear. It's like a fabric. And so, instead of thinking of yourself as going through life on a linear timeline, you have to shift your approach and view to looking at yourself at a point on the fabric. So it removes the linearity. And so based on that, you can then look at the idea of multiple parallel timelines. And so the question then becomes, which timeline do you want to be in? Of course, we want to be in the best timeline. So then the question becomes, how do you get yourself to the best timeline? And the good news is that the timeline is always... um, like a Merkle tree, that extends out in front of us from this point in space-time. I went to study at Dominher last year with some friends, um, which is another really interesting intentional community. You should check out Damanhur. They built these cathedrals in the Alps, secretly. Um, and then the Vatican found out and tried to shut it down. But it's a wild place. But they're doing a lot of really intentional meditation work and looking at crazy stuff. But one of the great insights from them is they believe that Every four seconds, there are seven timelines. And so if you look at life like this, it's sort of a weird way of just saying, hey, make good decisions. But if you think about every four seconds, there are seven potential timelines in front of you, how do you start to choose the best timeline for your company, for yourself, for your marriage, going forward? And so if that's dividing every four seconds, the only way you can actually get yourself to making the best timeline decision, because you can't do it intellectually, is to find your breath and to synchronize yourself into flow. And if you find yourself synchronizing into flow, you don't have to choose which timeline you're going into. Right. The universe self-organizes it for you. I have a whole theory, um, you can read it, if you Google descendant theory, um, I wrote it after a very intense Burning Man session, where it combines singularity simulation theory, and synchronicity into a holistic view. And so the idea of that is that if at some point in the future of the space-time continuum we reach singularity, which is basically machines, silicon, humans, carbon, we're going to continue to merge. And at some point there's a very dangerous point of how well we do that merge, but we can see it's going to happen. On the other side of that merge that singular networked entity will begin to collapse in on itself in space-time. Some people think it will create a black hole, and through that black hole will emerge into a new dimension. There are at least 11 that we know of. We only really experienced three. But before that point, as the singularity nears, that that combined silicon-carbon entity plus whatever else emerges in the future would want to replicate itself into many simulations, so that it could figure out how best to continue its own compression slash evolution. And wouldn't that make sense then for it to transmit back some sort of guidance so that we could improve the simulation? So like my example of this, from a practical level, is whenever I'm in an airport passing airport security, I try to take extra bins and put them (laughs) in the thing because I'm trying to improve the efficiency of the simulation because that extra bin can compound just a little bit behind and compound a little bit behind and then somebody makes their flight and then somebody gets that deal and then the world moves forward a little bit faster. Or you pick up that little tiny piece of litter on the, on the street because you're literally improving the functionality of the simulation. And by doing so, the simulation then improves and the singularity knows which timeline to pick to further its compression. So you're literally serving God by picking up a piece of litter, right? I love that. And so that's kind of my theory of the world. And it comes back to this point about how do you find that? Again, back to the breath and then let yourself be guided into the best simulation, into the best timeline. And the best timeline will then reveal miracles for you. And that's what we try to teach and practice and learn because we're all experimenting. We're learning this ourselves. Right. It's all kind of a... A joke. It's all kind of a game, but if it's working, why not try to double down? Is there anything that scares you? Yeah, I mean the reality of the situation, right? So the timeline that we're in now is probably toward human extinction, and we haven't even talked about the impending oxygen crisis. Let's see the dead, the, the dead oceans. The well, the there's region. a reason why there's an impending oxygen. So you got to understand that climate is the really big issue, but it's a m- massive adaptation level event. Behind climate is the looming oxygen crisis. Look at theoxygenproject.org if you want to learn more about that. But 80% of the oxygen that comes into the planet is generated from the oceans, and we're killing the oxygen production machine through the acidification of the oceans because of carbon. Right. So we have to figure out a long-term plan because in 600 years, that's the, about the timeline, we will all be extinct. Not just any oxygen-breathing Element on the planet is on a six-year, six-hundred-year timeline toward extinction. So, okay, that's not bad for you or me, or even our kids or our grandkids. But it's really crazy. Well, now, and that could be accelerated. So that's that's the. Well, I uh, mean, that's right. the feedback loops. But then that's not even counting the whole situation around just climate generally and, and carbon and the one-point-five degree. Beyond that, you have economic stress and you have um, geopolitical stress, and they compound.
1: Let me ask you. Let me ask you a political question. That uh, I, I was in a fascinating conversation yesterday with leaders in, in energy, and there seemed to be a consensus that we had to, because of the world events, that we had to go back to fossil fuels uh, in the short term, and that we had to make major investments in those fossil fuels to. To cover the shortfall from Russia. Right. And that that was going to sort of slow down this, this, the push for green energy.
0: Well, What's your feeling? So I think, unfortunately, that's likely to happen, and that's going to set us on a really bad timeline. Right? We've never done that well. Well, we were already on a bad timeline, and we're making right. the timeline worse. On the other hand, you know, Tom Butenbach at 8 Minute Energy, he has a solar company. He's scaling solar to zero. It'll cost zero. Solar as a service, eventually you'll probably get paid. We're working on energetic tokenization, so um, what I call token energetics. Uh, 2023, we're going to be launching a number of tokenized assets in wind, solar, geothermal. Geothermal is a huge potential solution that we could tap into that's actually cheap and renewable and fantastic for the planet. We could take coal plants and repurpose them into geothermal and do a a huge amount. But it's true. The gap is massive. There's a lot of people here talking about nuclear and going to like, you know, micro nuclear. That would solve it. But it's a, it, it's problematic. We've got full circle of nuclear, haven't we? Which is I'm still not a fan of nuclear, but when you really look at the realistic issue, micronuclear might be an answer. But I really worry about, you know, you look at Fukushima and, Absolutely. you know, I just having distributed uh, micronuclear, it just scares the hell out of me. My great hope is fusion. I, I have some friends, some of our investors are working in parallel on fusion and hydrogen. One would hope that that's going to, um, have a difference. But for the next couple of years, it's not looking good. So we're going to have to accelerate. Carbon capture could help solve it. If we can get air-based carbon capture going, we could actually start to really remove. And there's a company, Bill Gross is doing called Carbon Capture that could make a difference. But in terms of that timeline, we also have economic stress because we just printed so much money. And we're obviously now seeing inflation, food insecurity, I actually kind of hope that DAOs are going to be able to accelerate their growth enough that we can solve some of these problems through collective action. And that's my great hope. I still believe that technology, properly applied with a conscious intent, can get us onto the right timeline. It's the only way I see of having a chance. I mean, it seems to me
1: that's the only way to look at it right now is that that's got to help solve that problem.
0: Well, we have no choice because nothing we have now is solving it. If you're do, do you talk to think, climate do, people, they say there's enough solutions out there. Do you think as humans... Like blue halos. Do you think as humans
1: that we have to have this... Uh, I was talking to somebody last night, and their view was... Her view was that we're going to have to go through this, this period in the next 100 years of real
0: struggle before we... I don't agree. Yeah. I, I, I was wondering what your thought... It's what timeline do you want to be on? If you want to be on a timeline of real struggle, you go to that timeline... I don't want to go to that. Point. I, think, I think our view is that, that you have to,
1: for, for us to get it as humans, for us to change, that we have to have these massive, this
0: massive struggle, period I don't struggle to, to sort of change our way. I don't agree. Okay. No, I think that we can evolve and change just by doing the work of breathing consciously. If okay. you do that work, all you have to do is breathe and start to pay attention to your breath. And if you breathe and start to pay attention to your breath, it sets you on that micro timeline that splits every four seconds towards a different timeline. And I believe there are multiple parallel dimensional realities. And we can move ourselves collectively towards the best dimensional timeline reality, which serves the compression of the the simulation into synchronicity. There is a brighter future out there, but it starts with every second that we take a breath, and then the way that we take that breath and relate to the people around us. If we all did that, everything would be radically different. Okay, I I, I agree, and we've got
1: to do something to change the, the our course, and, and and that may may mean new
0: leadership. at it's at ultra government. micro. Everything everything matters, right? Okay. So this is the other thing. People think. Little things don't matter. The only thing that matters is the little things. Every micro action changes the simulation and it changes the pathway towards synchronicity. That is the meta reason of how and why we're here. It's, it's how atoms combine into things, into material reality. And if you want to affect the material reality, you have to affect the timeline through synchronization, that's what Hub Culture is trying to learn. I mean, we're <laughs> right. we're no experts. We're experimenting as, as much as anybody else. But for me personally, this is what I've been learning, and I'm no expert. But this is the path we're on. And you know what? It, we may not be right, but this is our authentic self, and we're saying this is the new leadership. The new leadership. You have to stop, look inward, breathe, and then go. Right. Well, what I would say is whether you're right or wrong, you're
1: trying, and you're trying to set the world on a different course, and I think that's, uh, we need more leadership like that. So I, I, I know we have to wrap it up, we're running out of time, but I could sit here and talk to you all day, because yeah. I think this stuff well, is fascinating. We should, we should and we didn't figure even get, out a way to
0: have more of these conversations. And we
1: didn't even get into what the world's going to look like in terms of meta and, and uh, you know AI, AI and... We got we got a lot to cover, but um, I I really wanted today's focus to be on you and how you have grown as a leader and as a person, and how that reflects on what you do here.
0: I I think I'll I'll end with something like, you know, we're back in Davos, but the last Davos, I left Davos, and three days later, I went with Benki to live with the Ashaninka in the Amazon Mm -hmm. for a few weeks, and. The reason I went was because we were working on Propel, which is our digital distributed voting system that comes with every hub. So if you open a hub, you get a free voting system with it. And I was looking at governance for like a year as we were building Propel. And the Inca are amazing. They're, uh, they have a 1,000-year history of unbroken governance. How cool is that? I mean, if you want to see a society that lasts and persists, go spend some time with Benke in the Amazon. And, and they're a, happy. Well, you know, they're not happy. There's gasoline in their rivers because of mining in the Amazon. Right. There's Their forests are being cut down. They're trying to live in a world that is not suited for them. But the thing I've learned from the Ashininka and from indigenous leaders in Hawaii, like Sabra, is that the indigenous leaders on this planet are endangered, but I think they are the ones that hold the key for us to transition to a sustainable world. So if we can merge Indigenous respect and know-how with technology, I think we can get over the transition hump of the Malthusian like problem that we face, which is resource scarcity combined with some form of digital abundance. We can make that work, but I think we need to look closely at Indigenous practices to be able to get to it regenerative farming. If we went to regenerative agriculture worldwide, we would solve deforestation because they're cutting down the forests because they need more farmland because people got to eat. But right behind them, 10 miles behind is the forest that they cut down that they managed badly as agricultural land. And they haven't like just learned to turn around and regenerate that agriculture. Mm-hmm. There are solutions. We could solve it. We just have to do it. It's had the will. Be, I mean, that's... The political will and, and we yeah. have to... I mean, we can talk about the politics
1: another time, but that needs a total rewrite. Yes, it does. I hate to go, but we've got to we've got to wrap it up. Thank you, thank uh, you. This has been fun, and, and we're going to have to do this again. Yeah. Um, and so, thank you for uh, being with us here today uh, on this program, live from Davos, Switzerland, at uh, the World Economic Forum and uh, the Culture and
0: Davos Summer Campus. The summer There's campus. A lot of words. The I, title. Blah blah blah. But <laughs> and
1: I mean, I hope we can get a view of that on the on the show. What we're looking at here. This is just a beautiful day, and you're a beautiful person. And so are you. Thanks for having. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being with me. So, cheers.
0: Thanks, man.